are back at 9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy. Or maybe it's your first time here. Uh, I don't know your life. But either way, welcome. Thank you for being here. On this episode, I was really excited to be able to sit down with my dear friend, Amanda Hallbeck. She is a dear friend. I've known her for a long time. We'll talk, you know, on the show about how we know each other. But she's just really been there for me in a lot of ways, especially in recent years. And it was great to be able to sit down and talk about this album from Elliot Smith, his first, Roman Candle. Because it means so much to her and her husband. And it's just a big part of her life. And Elliot Smith is very much one of those artists that... People that are into him typically have a pretty serious connection to his work. So I really was happy to be able to sit down with someone who feels deeply about him and his work. So here's us talking Roman Candle. It means a lot to me you coming here and, and doing it with me. We've been talking about doing it for a while, but thanks. Yeah. We have to reschedule a lot. That happens. It's fine. It does. That's fine. What album are we here to talk about today? We are here to talk about Elliot Smith's Roman Candle. 1994, the first album from the saddest bastard in music history. Right? Oh. Up there. I mean, him and Nick Drake, maybe. Yeah. Leonard Cohen, there's a few others maybe, but he's up there. He's on the Mount Rushmore of Sad Bastards. He is. He is. And it's interesting because my introduction to him and my falling in love with his music was never sad. Good. That's good. <laughs> but let's start with you and me. How do we know each other? Oh, wow. We know each other middle school? Yeah. I don't think we went to the same elementary school. I was village. Yeah. I was round. Okay. So middle school. So middle school. I have very vivid memories of you in your purple dinosaur <laughs> junior attire. Yep. Still dressed that way pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had classes together. And I remember thinking you were really cool. And we were friends throughout much of high school, too. And then we kind of lost touch yeah. for... We were, like, Facebook friends for a long time, but, yeah. like, didn't talk much until I moved back here. Yeah. And the last, what, two or three years, we've gotten a lot closer. It's been gangbusters. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's I love been it. great. Yeah. Because I've 
listen to your other podcast, Cinema 9. <laughs> and I really like listening to you guys talk about movies. And um, I really like this podcast so far, too. And you were on Cinema 9, so if you like listening to Amanda talk to me, you can check out that episode. What, what movie did we do together? <laughs> Running Man. Running Man, yes. How could I forget? Was, which was my pick. Yes. I'm proud of it. You should be. It's a great movie. I think it holds up. <laughs> So you have a really personal journey with Elliot Smith, it sounds like, you and your husband in particular. So how did you get into Elliot Smith? So this album, you know, with the dates, right? I mean, Elliot Smith was not someone that I knew about when this album came out. I don't know anyone that knew. What was his first album? Right, and it was pretty quiet. Yeah. But I think a lot of people... The Gubalani soundtrack. Yes. The the really awkward performance on the Oscars. Yeah. (laughs) The same year as the Celine Dion Titanic song. Wow. Um, But yeah, so I... I became familiar with Elliot because my husband, Chris, was a super fan. He was a huge fan. And right after Chris and I met, I was introduced to Elliot's music. So I associate his music with falling in love with my now husband, which was such an amazing time. So I know that his music is sad and he can be on the Mount Rushmore of depression music. But it has a lot of different memories for me. That's so one thing that he could never do, and it'll make a whisper out of you. She took the old smoothbill out past Carter Avenue. It's easy to kind of make fun of it a little bit. Maybe it's like a my own way of. Uh, being not totally comfortable with the intense vulnerability of his music at times, which says a lot, because I am someone that's into that stuff a lot, but I know a lot of people that are really big Elliott Smith fans, and I have listened to every album of his except for this one. I mean, I started listening to it in preparation for this episode. This is the one that I had kind of missed for whatever reason. But when I feel like listening to Elliott Smith, I put on figure eight, and I'm pretty much good. Even that one, like, I dig too much into his stuff, and... I don't get the happy falling in love vibes. I get the, like, let's just take our hands off the wheel vibes. You know, it's... <laughs> it's uh... <laughs> Absolutely. I understand that. And I've explored that more now for the first time, revisiting things, paying attention to things in a different way. Mm. So Chris and I met in very, very early 2000. And it's been a long time. The music has come and gone. I haven't been listening to Elliot constantly from 2000 until now. Mm-hmm. Had a bit of a pause. And so actually digesting lyrics for the first time, maybe more than I did before. 
Yeah, it's heavy. It's really heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That seems to be like his his trademark. Is this an album that you bought and that you own and that you have a copy of? Um, see, Chris does not know that I am recording this, and so I didn't ask oh. him a bunch of questions. I didn't purchase anything. He had so many things. Mm-hmm. He had all of the albums. And then was part of a trading for live shows. Okay. So he used to record them oh. uh, on these little, I don't know, high-quality recording devices. Sure. And then you would make tapes of them or burn discs of them, and then there was a fan community, and so you'd mail each other shows. Wow. And it was all very, I don't know, just very nice, very nice people and cool. people who really, really loved the music. And, you know, if you didn't have a show to trade and you were just getting into it, like you would send extra blank CDs and Mm. then extra postage to the person. And and maybe they'd be kind enough to, it was just this really interesting community of people who traded shows. But yeah, he had all of the albums and then, I don't know, now it's streaming. So I don't have, I mean, I know they're all in a box. (laughs) (laughs) So why didn't you tell Chris that you were recording this episode? Part of it, I kind of wanted to be a bit of a surprise for him. That's cute. Hi, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I just have such good memories of meeting this young man and completely being head over heels in love. And then he played guitar, Mm -hmm. liked to write music. And I think for him, Elliot was like, oh... I can do this because it's mostly just a guy and his guitar mm-hmm. in a basement mm-hmm. or in a room, especially this album. In a basement on a hill? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I, you, I, I, I opened the door wide <laughs> open for you that. Really did. You just had to walk right in. Yeah. Was there a new one? Um, so what is the best song in this album for you? Could you pick one? It was hard, but... Yeah. And I'm sure over the years it's changed. Sure. Um... I think right now, in the past couple weeks after listening to it, I think it's Last Call. Last call, he was sick of it all, asleep at home, told you all, and goodbye, but you know. something I thought I would have picked, but after listening to it over and over again, it's a little bit more complex because this album is so very bare bones. Oh my God. Yeah. It wasn't even supposed to be an album. It was supposed to be a demo, right? Yeah. Yeah. He had no intention of this being released. It was all just him. It's like Bruce Springsteen is Nebraska, kind of. like This is for the studio heads and the studio heads. In this case, it was Cavity Search uh, Records, which is not exactly a huge record label or anything. But they were like, this is great. Let's put this out as is. Yes, and I did read that he was thinking, no, I don't think I want to do that because <laughs> this, is, this is not for public consumption. Right. But 
At last call is, I don't know, it's a little bit more, I guess he's using more tracks, layering more things. It's intense. Yes, there's vulnerability. There's also anger. Mm, there's a lot of anger on the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a lot of anger. But I, you can hear that. It's yeah. honest. It's so honest. I mean, all That's of this it. stuff is honest, but this one is, I think, especially so. I think you really nailed something there, because I mean, this is one of the most honest, authentic, raw musicians I could think of. And this album, like you said, not intended for public consumption. And it's like before he really had established himself in any way, so he wasn't trying to like... I mean, he was in Heat Miser, of course, but like that was not a household name or anything. Right, and I think this was recorded when they were still a band. Yeah, I believe so. So this... You're just like, oh, well, these are my tunes and I'm just going to record them for me or right. maybe for something, some eventual project. Start to drink, just want to continue. It'll all be yesteryear soon. things that I think are autobiographical mm -hmm. and I'm not well researched in his biography but knowing a little bit about it seemed like some abuse in his childhood maybe from a father or stepfather and you definitely hear that on this album yeah. but I think also some songs read to me like stories Yes. They're not super specific stories, though. They're not very structured no. stories. They're very, like, you're getting pieces and snippets of some sort of event. Someone has left their boyfriend, or someone's yes. calling someone to let them know that they're pregnant, or whatever. I think that's what's happening there. Yes. That's actually my favorite track on it's this album. It's very vague. Is uh, No Name Number Two, if I had to pick a song. I'm not going to pick a least good song or a 
uh, underrated songs. I'm not. I never really got into this album, but I will say that No Name Number Two is the one I get most excited about. That line, uh, her name was just a stutter step. The sound you hear when you're falling down is like so good. What an incredible line! Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's amazing. Yeah. Her name was just a broken sound. The stutter step you hear when you're falling down. So that's interesting. That's how you interpreted the song? That's how I interpreted the song, which, I, again, who knows if I'm right, but to me, that that's reading the lyrics. It sounded like someone was letting someone know that she was pregnant and the guy didn't give a shit, and yeah. he's saying, do what you want, but I don't know if that's what's actually happening in there, of course. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was like, okay, it's bad news over the phone. Yeah. Hard to tell for me. That's really interesting. But that really brings it home of these are like a vague scene. Mm. It's not even like a story like a movie. It's yeah. almost, there's a lot of songs that are just, it's just a scene. And I, I see things in my head. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, just a vague scene. So you were listening to Elliot Smith with your husband when Elliot Smith was alive. So you were aware, you remember when he passed? Yeah, um, so we saw a bunch of shows together, Chris and I. I mean, obviously he saw him a lot. And then when Chris and I got together, I started going with him to a bunch of shows and Mm -hmm. we saw him a bunch. And it was great. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Chris was involved in the fan community and there was, I don't know the man's name that ran it. There wasn't an like an official fan club, mm-hmm. but this was sort of the unofficially official fan club. Gotcha. But I remember being home and seeing some posts on there, and given Elliot's history, like people weren't sure if it was real because mm-hmm. he had, you know, had a lot of suicide attempts. Yeah. And and it was real, and it was horrible and really sad. Yeah. Right after that, or very, very quickly after that, let's see, I was in school at the time, and Chris, I think, sent me a message or called me and said, um, so there's this concert happening in L.A., and it's a tribute concert, and I can get tickets. Should I just get tickets? We'd have to go to L.A. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, just get them. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And we did. That's great. So it was a tribute concert at the Henry Fonda Theater. And um, we met up with another friend of ours now who's a close friend, but it was the first time we met in person because he was part of the band community. I remember going there, going to the theater, waiting in line. Um, We were first in line and waited there all day and were right up next to the stage. Nice. So it was like Beth Orton, Beck, a huge list of people. Um, Rilo Kylie, I think, was there. Was Isaac Brock or Modest Mouse? I know that they were friends. No, mm-hmm. I don't think that they were there. I know that there was another tribute concert that happened after that mm-hmm. that was bigger. This one was... Like the immediate response. Yes, it was the immediate response. It was very hastily put together. I think originally... Proceeds were supposed to go to a foundation. That foundation wasn't even started yet with his family. And I don't even think anyone knows if there was proceeds, like where they actually went, because it was just so fast. It just happened so fast. Mm. 
some of the musicians there, they couldn't finish their songs. They were just, everyone was so raw. It was very moving and it was incredibly sad. We went to the store that has the mural Mm -hmm. from the other album on there. Mm -hmm. Took pictures of that and met people. And it was an amazing experience and I'm glad that we went. But it was really sad. I think Chris and I both, for a time after that, you know, distance ourselves from it because it was just so, it was hard. It was kind of the first time I had ever experienced, like, feeling close to an artist and then they passed away, Mm -hmm. like, in real time. Right. Yeah. It's so weird to lose someone that you don't know personally, but whose work means so much to you. For me, that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Um, It's just, like, never would I have expected, like, the impact that it had on me. So I can, I think everyone kind of, Everyone's got a few people that are so important to them. Yeah. And to lose those people uh, unexpectedly, it's weird because you're like, how appropriate is my grief? You know, it's like, I don't want to make it about me. And it's like, it's also sad, I think, to have someone's music mean so much to you and your relationship. And then it becomes changed because of yeah. you know the feelings that come up when you listen to it. Absolutely. It is. It's a weird phenomenon, right? Yeah. When there's someone who impacts your life so much that they they have no idea. Right. They have absolutely no idea. Right. And I know that must be weird for famous people, right, when, yeah. when that happens. But, yeah, I, I would think it would be a bit um, cold to not be sad in those situations. But when you, when you talk about the appropriate level of grief, mm. um, it's sadness for the future things. Yeah. That don't happen. Yeah, the work you're not going to be able to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, you feel an attachment to the individual themselves. Like, you come to care about them even if you don't know yeah. their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, what about the most underrated song on this album? Could you pick one of those? This one is the hardest question to think about because yeah. of this being his first album, demo album, right? I mm-hmm. mean... It's probably the one that, I don't know if it's maybe listened to the least out of all of them. It was um, the only one I'd ever listened to, so that says something, <laughs> anecdotally. That something. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, but like, so you picked No Name Number 2 for your favorite. Mm-hmm. I picked that as my most underrated. Oh yeah? That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's because of the things that you talked about. I mean, it's an amazing song. It's heartbreaking. I feel concurrent feelings, right? I have the memories and nostalgia of the feeling of falling in love. And then also re-examining the songs now and really taking in the scene of of what the song is about, Mm -hmm. which are heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, that's many layers. And then you add in the layer of how you feel about how he went and all that stuff. It gets complex, but there is something about that song. There is. And I don't know, I was not the one who was engaged in the fan community. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, a lot of people who really like Elliot Smith because I've never had that experience really. I've hung out with a lot of musicians in my life, okay, and I feel like yeah. he's really a musician's musician, which is a yeah. little snobby to that, say, but I think that that's true. That is also a revelation to me when this all came up and revisiting the music more, learning the huge legacy, mm-hmm. I guess, to other musicians, to newer and younger singer-songwriters. 
that was something I honestly didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard it a few times and wondered because I could hear things in, in other artists' music. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, um, well, there's an artist that I really like, a singer-songwriter. Her name is Agnes Obel. Um, I think she's Danish. Several of her songs have some chord progressions that reminded me so much of Elliot. And then I listened to some live things from her, and then she did a couple of covers of him. I'm like, oh, not I was surprised. like, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and I've, I've heard of that. Like, oh, there's a lot of people that really look to him as almost a, a guidepost for singer-songwriter writing. Yeah. And that's been interesting to yeah. learn. Now for the hard question. That was yeah, the that hard, was the hard one question. for so me. Then, you, then it's easy for you to say, or easier to say, what the least good song, the weakest song on the album is. I was going back and forth about this. <sighs> to me, I think it's the opener. I don't know. Oh really? I'm weird. I guess I don't know. Oh, I always picked that as my favorite. Really? I, yeah. Interesting. He played himself. personal thing with the notes and the way that it feels. I think all of them are good songs. Sure. I just happen to skip that one sometimes just because I, you know, I mean, an argument could be made for like the very last track, which is not, it would be one of the things, one of these things is not like the others, it doesn't belong, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the least good track, like I said, I'm not going to pick one, but I will say that quite a few times in listening to this album, I stopped the album when that song came on. I'm like, yeah, I got it. I'm good. I know where this is going. <laughs> uh, after I listened to it a couple times, it's nice. The but, un? Yeah, the last, the, the last one. Okay, song. so it's, not it's, bad. Ki- it's, just, it's Kiwi Mad Dog 2020. Which is a great name. And it's instrumental and sounds like a surf rock guitar style ballad. Mm. I don't know what, it, what else to call that style of guitar. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. But so Roman Candle for you, is it, is it maybe, again, kind of going back to that, that rage that's there? Is it maybe something to do with that? Um, a little, yeah, I think it's, yes, I think that is probably part of it. Just feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. in learning about the content of the song. Yeah. Okay, yes, so this one feels more autobiographical. It, this yeah. feels like this is a kid who is an abused kid who has a lot of anger and like, okay, well, I want my abuser to feel pain. Like, right. I want to get back at them. Right. And it's so raw, and it just makes my stomach kind of feel just sad. Yes. Because it's so effective. Right. 
Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's it's, not, not, not that it's the weakest or anything, but that it's uh, it puts you in a place. Of, and it's a weird way to start off an album. In it a way, is. Too. It's like this is a this is a mood to set. Yeah, because it's so effective. It's like I guess you know on the movie podcast when we talk about when things are a difficult watch mm-hmm. and they're hard because they're effective and maybe you don't want to have to deal with these uncomfortable topics. It's emotional work. Yes, yeah. and it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just maybe sometimes you don't want to go there. Right. I mean, all of his music, and I think especially this album for a lot of people, you've got to be in a certain mood. (laughs) Yeah. Like, there's a reason. Like, you might want to... You're feeling a certain way, and maybe putting on this album can help you have an emotional release and then get through it yeah but yeah i think that's why i mean some of the lyrics it's just so visceral yeah and yeah the the vulnerability and the honesty yeah and that's brave he was brave the work that he put out was Mm -hmm. was brave i think there's a lot of musicians that they put out sad work and then you like look into their private lives and you know from a fucking distance through a tv screen or documentary or book or something but you like learn more about like oh they're a normal person with healthy emotions that they experience a full range of joy and all that like take trent reznor for instance like the guy's kind of a goofball it seems like a lot of his earlier stuff you would never have picked up on that you know but with elliot smith it does seem i mean maybe knowing what we know about his struggles with addiction and and how his life ended it's kind of hard not to dwell in that because you've there's no feelings of other things as much at least not for me yeah there's a lot there there's just a lot is this a bummer conversation am i bumming you out um a little <laughs> bit. you know i think it's important it's almost like i'm working through it this is therapy good kind of because i haven't in listening to this album so much over the past couple of weeks and especially the past few days I purposely had not revisited the other albums Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to get it all jumbled up in my head. Yeah, it makes sense. So this one, yeah, it's a whole vibe. I mean, the later albums, there are things that I find, there's pieces of humor, there's lightness. Mm -hmm. There are some things that balance it. You know, when he got the budget and Mm -hmm. the studio space to do bigger things, Mm -hmm. they're amazing. And so I don't think that they're, I don't think it's all bummer. Right. No, I don't um, either for what it's worth. I make jokes, but <laughs> th- there is some lightness in his stuff for sure. Yeah. Like some of his stuff, I don't know about this album, but some of his stuff you could put on like on a summer day and be relaxed and like, this is nice. Right. Well, okay. There is one song on here mm-hmm. and maybe you can correct me. Okay. So. I, I don't know. So, No Name Number Three, uh-huh. I almost consider it a lullaby. Yeah, I could get that. It's peaceful. Mm-hmm. You know, So Come On Night. I'm sure there's probably some dark undertones, but it almost reminds me of a peaceful lullaby. Yeah, I, I took that to be like the gentlest song mm-hmm. on the album. Yes. And definitely one that stood out to me. All the no-name ones in particular, I think, are pretty great. Yeah. I don't know if they're no-name because he couldn't think of names or because there's a theme there that he's returning to. Maybe both. Yeah. I haven't read about that or tried to read about that. If there was a reason for Mm -hmm. 
the no name one, two, three, four. Hmm. Yeah, if it's a theme or if it's on purpose or I just didn't think of a name or any of that. But yeah, I like the gentle nature of a no name number three. What song do you want to use to go out on? <laughs> that one. I had a feeling. My <laughs> work. Um, we'll do it. <laughs> there's just something about the guitar that's really nice. I wanted to ask you if there are other artists that, when you talk about musicians, musician, like are there people that you know of that have said they have been influenced by him? Um, yeah, I know some people personally in my life, people I've played with that uh, That's cool. that like him and, and had an impact on him. And I've heard other musicians talk about him very reverently in interviews and that kind of stuff. That's good. Yeah, and not necessarily everyone you would think either. I mean, one of the people I'm thinking of from my life who was a huge fan is like a metalhead. So go really? figure. Yeah. I love that. I think a good song is a good song, right? Like that's why you can hear some weird covers that completely cross a genre mm-hmm. or redoing it, you know, in a completely different genre. Like it's a good song. Yeah. So that makes me wonder if if the person you know of would they do an Elliot metal version <laughs> i don't know that i want to hear that but i, I would press play just to find, just I would to find want, out <laughs> i would want to find out for sure i feel very fortunate i guess of coming at his music and having such strong attachment in this way of such a happy time in my life Mm -hmm. because it seems to be that like that's the music you put on when you're feeling the worst in your whole life and there are songs that just punch me in the gut yeah i think for me the reason why they don't as much is because when i listen to music it's the sounds it's the emotion that the choice of notes and the audio is structured, and then the lyrical content is second sure. for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was able to go so long, maybe, uh, with um, some of the things not feeling so depressing, mm-hmm. you know, not analyzing lyrics. Are you saying that getting ready for the show has made you more depressed about this album? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, for sure. <laughs> no, but, that, but when I say it's therapeutic, I think that's important. I think it is important because one could argue, well, you didn't do half the work to even understand his music. Mm. So I'm glad that I am. I'm glad that I'm seeing him differently or more wholly mm-hmm. uh, as an artist. So I think that's really good. That is one of the things... I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I love about doing this podcast, but the way that you can look at something that your whole life or most of your life just kind of feel a certain way, but you set it down for a while and pick it back up again, and you've changed, and it can can hit you in a different way. Especially, I mean, so you chose these years, and there is firm research to show why we are so attached and nostalgic about these years in our lives these you know teen years these very impressionable years right so when you do these shows and everyone comes on that's why i love it so much it can either be introduced to stuff i had no idea or how revisiting changes things and and looking at things from an adult perspective yeah 
and everyone has different life experiences and will bring different things to the table. And that's all really important. Word. I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to edit word out. But <laughs> <laughs> um, What else you listen to? You listen to anything else? From these specific years or in general? Oh, no, no. Just, yeah, in your life, what are you listen to? Um, I'm a huge fan of Hozier. Okay. And he has a new album. People are excited. And I'm so excited. Actually, we have tickets to see him. Nice. Which, again, the, the husband, Chris, that I have mentioned. Yeah. Uh, surprised me with tickets. Nice. And worked very hard on several devices and refreshing pages to get tickets <laughs> and um, actually get through and get them. And I'm so super excited about that. That's awesome. But I did mention Agnes Obell. Mm -hmm. uh, she's just an awesome singer-songwriter. Sometimes I think people may have come to her music because it's been used in some television shows. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that she got a huge bump from the show Euphoria Okay. on HBO. She's really cool. Are you ready for your last question? <laughs> I don't know. Am I? It sounds a little <laughs> ominous. <laughs> it's not like going to be the last question of your life, I don't presume. Um, I hope not. I got things to do. <laughs> so you have described yourself to me as a foodie before. Yeah. In 1993, the Food Network aired for the first time. <laughs> okay. Um, it had quite a few different shows. I'm going to ask you like a two-part question. I'm going to give you five different shows, and I want you to tell me which one of these shows you'd most like to be on. Oh. And then we'll move on from okay. there. Okay. All right, because I did not have cable during these years yet. Maybe? But, well, maybe I did. Okay. And honestly, like, I think you're going to be aware of all these shows. <laughs> okay. Um, and some of them, I think they're all on Food Network. Iron Chef is the only one I'm not sure if it was on Food Network. It was for... definitely on Food Network. Okay, so Iron Chef, it came out in 1993 as well. Mm -hmm. It was a, a kind of a cultural juggernaut. Before people were cutting things up that, that looked like they weren't cake but were cake, they were very much into Iron Chef for like a decade, right? Yes. And it was very dramatic. So, the original Iron Chef was a program from... Japan. Yes. So, the Food Network just ran those yeah. dubbed. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm, not, mean, even they, I'm not even talking about the American version. Yeah, they got, they what's his name, uh, Mark Descartes goes in there. But, I don't even know who that is, so like I wasn't watching anymore. Dude. But I remember watching that and being just completely flummoxed. Yeah. What am I watching? What is this? It was astonishing. So that's an option. Okay. There was Grillin' and Chillin' with Bobby Flay. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you'd like to grill with Bobby mm. Flay. Mm, okay. That's an option for you. Okay. Essence of Emeril. Bam! Let's kick it up a notch. Exactly. Bam, bam, bam! New Orleans cooking. Before Guy Fieri came on and impressed everyone with his charisma, yeah. Emerald was like the super happy, friendly kind of yes. guy that energetic and always with the bam. bam. Oh, yeah. Bam. He was hitting everybody with the bam. <laughs> so he's an option. On the other end of that spectrum, we have this grim looking bastard. Uh, you can't. 
you can see it if you're at if you're listening at home. Oh, but Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay. Yes, Gordon Ramsay's Boiling Point came out in 1998. That was the first show that he had um, about him, you know, being a dick in a kitchen, I guess, is kind of like his whole shtick. Unless there's kids around, then he's really nice to them. But, you know, as soon as they hit 18, then he's cruel. I don't understand exactly, but that seems to be his thing. Huh. And then lastly... Julia Child in Julia's Kitchen with Master Chefs. Her show started in 1993 where she would have like a different major chef on yes. every week and they would chef it up. So which one of these five would you go on if you could? Oh, hands down in Julia's Kitchen. I had a feeling. Absolutely. <laughs> Did you um, grow up watching her? Uh, yes, definitely grew up watching her. PBS, you know, before Food Network. Uh, so I, I don't even know what number show this would be for her. I think it was like her fourth or fifth. Okay. Yeah, maybe longer, um, maybe more. There's another show, I don't know if that came before or after this one, that was uh, Julia and Jacques. So Julia and her very good friend, Chef Jacques Pepin. Mm-hmm. And the two of them together was just beautiful. They were old friends. They would cook together, laugh together, poke fun at each other. That was always a good one. That's um, fun. But yeah, oh yeah, hands down, I would have wanted to be on Julia's Kitchen. I'd go on Iron Chef and be confused and embarrassed. It'd be a memorable experience. That would be my runner up, especially with those original chefs that line up. Yeah. <laughs> I, it just. The showmanship. <laughs> yes. The, yeah. They're, they're, they're all about that. There That's the like, word. There was like the guy that, I don't know, ran the whole thing. Yelled things. Was very yeah. dramatic. Yeah, exactly. He had a cape, I think. <laughs> well, you can't cook without a cape. No, 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 no. The, the, he was the, like an announcer. The dude. chairman or yeah, like yeah, yeah. the... I know the, what you're talking about. He was the, like the guy that announced things. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to force everyone to battle in my kitchen arena. <laughs> he was the, the Iron Chef overlord. So the last question then is, if you had your own cooking show, what would the premise be? Ooh. Oh. Take your time. Oh, I know. So, because this is something I'm genuinely passionate about. So, for anyone listening who doesn't know, Travis is probably asking or discussing my foodie nature because I I did go to culinary school. Uh, I was a chef for quite a while doing different things. I worked in a, a hotel, I did private chef work, and I really love that. I love teaching, mm-hmm. and because of my family and my children having dietary restrictions, because, you know, there's allergies and celiac, and everybody has something like that. So. Yeah. My cooking show would be helping people deal with those things, right? Like, here are simple things. Don't be overwhelmed if you need to eat a certain way now because that's what's best for you. But just workarounds and easy things to show people. Maybe so they're not feeling sick. <laughs> you could have like a different theme each week. You go, yeah. We're going to deal with Lone Star disease. We're going to deal with celiacs. Exactly. You know, you have yeah. All the different yeah. allergies that people could have. Exactly. That's fun. That's fun. Yeah. Food Network, di- pick it up. Yeah. Different <laughs> dietary needs or nutritional needs. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's fun. I, I don't know. I'm a helper. I like to help people. Let's see. Right before the show, I was describing you as a problem solver. So there you go. <laughs> Amanda, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. And look how good the dogs were. The whole time she's been doing this, both of my dogs who love her 
And also, she's literally one of my dog's godmother because I wouldn't have Mara without Amanda. They've just sat next to her, glued to her this entire time. And they were very good. Well, I did bring them bougie dog treats when I got here. <laughs> that helps. That's the secret. <laughs> the first day I met them, I cooked them some steak. You did. You did. <laughs> I know. I know how to get in good. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you. Home to oblivion. Home to oblivion. Home to oblivion. No, we're not. Okay, thank you so much for joining me and Amanda talking about this album that's so important to her, this musician that's so important to her and her husband. I had a lot of fun talking about it with her. I always have fun with Amanda. She's a good buddy. And I appreciate her coming on. Maybe you want to come on, person listening. I'm always looking for new guests. Any album pretty much that you want to talk about from 1993 or 1994 that I haven't already done, reach out to me. Let me know. You like Elliot Smith, maybe you like the Red House Painters. Some escape, some door to open. This path seems the blackest, but I guess it's the soonest. But there in the clearing, I know you'll be wearing your young aching smile, waving your hand. I never really got into them. I did get into Mark Kozilek and Sun Kill Moon you know, before his fall from grace. The second self-titled album from Red House Painters came out in 1993. Maybe someone wants to come on and talk about that. Why not? Or maybe you want to talk about some other album. I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm not picky, man. I'm, I just recorded an episode with someone, and as I said to him, like, uh, I don't want to be bound in by genre. And less and less, I don't even want to be bound in by only talking about albums that I like. When I started this podcast, that was a huge part of it. I was going to be like, oh, I just want to talk about albums I love. But more and more, I'm just like, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about music. And someday I'll get around to talking about the Afghan wigs with some fucking buddy. But uh, in the meantime, whatever, you know, whatever. I'm pretty open. You can email me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. I'm on threads, I guess. I don't know. Social media is like a wash these days. Social media and streaming. Just going down the pooper. I swear. Uh, who could have foreseen it? Anywho, thank you for listening. It means a lot to me. I can't do this show without guests. And I really can't do the show without listeners. Uh, you are the most important part of this. So thank you. Have a great life. Yeah, that's fine.
9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy, is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.